0: Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Hello, and welcome to the EM360 podcast with our Ask the Expert series, a weekly conversation with people who are impacting the enterprise tech landscape. I'm Max Curtin, Editor-in-Chief here at EM360, and your host on today's podcast. So in today's episode, I'm really excited because I get to be speaking with Theo Priestley, Fio is a leading technology evangelist and self-styled anti-futurist. He's recognized globally as an authority on emerging business and technology trends and is a highly sought-after keynote speaker. He's held senior positions at large global enterprise software companies and served as a mentor in various startup accelerators. So welcome, Theo, and generally, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. Thanks for
1: inviting me, Max. Thanks.
0: Today we're going to be looking at the role of an anti-futurist, the current state of AI which is obviously a very popular topic and where it's heading in the future and the importance of good data that leads to good AI. So I feel like the best jumping off point here is the description of yourself as I alluded to in the intro has been that of an anti-futurist. So helping people think about the future without pontificating assertions really. So How important is the mindset to keep people grounded with all of this new technology and all the ideas that are out there?
1: Yeah, there's a growing movement, I think, within organizations and certainly in the public eye as well, you know, to treat foresight and horizon scanning, which is kind of other terms for what futures do, you know, as an integral part of their everyday life and, you know, working culture. For me, being a sort of anti-futurist, if you will, what I found is that there tends to be a lot of chasing of shiny objects. We regularly read in the tech press wonderful devices that are coming out of Silicon Valley or or other incubators that are set to improve life for the consumer or make businesses more ready for change and innovation. But what I find is that no one really sort of becomes critical about the hype. So a perfect use case example would be a device called Juicero that came out of Silicon Valley, which uh, won a ton of money in venture capitalist funding. And it was an automated juice bag squeezer for want of a better description. And what they did was they basically created, I think it was a $600 piece of hardware that you could buy that would basically take bags of juice, freshly squeezed juice, and squeeze it for you. First world problem. Yeah, first world problem exactly. And and until someone who was reviewing it actually discovered that you could just squeeze the bag yourself without paying the six hundred dollars to get the machine to do it, and all of a sudden it just collapsed overnight, and it it really made me question, you know, one, well, what was its place in the, the universe for a start, and then two, who in their right mind actually thought that this was a life changing device that needed to be in people's kitchens or workplaces? This is kind of where traditionally I was a a trend watcher, forecaster and a futurist. And then I kind of sort of become extremely cynical and started to really raise eyebrows over some of the things that people were trying to forecast or or build or, or launch. And it's that critique, I think, over emerging technologies, which I think is kind of lacking in general, whether it's from a business context or whether it's, you know, from technology and consumer side. So, the real mindset is, you know, if, if you see something exciting, the first things that you should really sort of look at is, you know, how would you apply this in your life? What is the impact that this particular thing would have? And would it actually make your life better? You know, if the answers are no kind of thing. You know, if it's not going to make my life better, if it actually interrupts something which is a natural process for me, if it's not a positive impact, then really is this really the future that we wanted to be designing for? I gave a a keynote talk to Bosch, the big sort of software and hardware company at their big IoT event last year. And the main thrust of it was, you know, just what does the future hold? But more importantly, who are we actually building it for? And I do think that we tend to imagine futures without actually understanding that it's future generations that will be inheriting the stuff that we want to build. So I think... Pour me, being un an anti c'est it's actually becoming a, a bit of a critical pivot in how we view trend watching and how we view forecasting um, and horizon scanning, and basically becoming a little bit more grounded with with what we're trying to protect. Pour avoir un site bien conçu et bien référencé, il y a ceux qui galèrent bien, et puis il y a les autres, ceux qui veulent créer eux-mêmes leur site facilement, et ceux qui préfèrent ne rien faire. Pour eux, YoNo s'occupe de tout. Ce qui est sûr, c'est qu'avec IONOS, on peut toujours faire appel à son conseiller personnel comme s'il était dans le bureau d'à côté. À choisir, vous préférez quoi Un tuto ou un conseiller que vous finirez par tutoyer À bientôt sur ionos.fr podcast. Bonne écoute
0: everyone needs to kind of have that critical eye of things. And I understand that it's very easy to get caught up in the hype, especially when you're designing it and it's your idea. You think it's going to change the world, but it's taking that step back to to look at the grander picture. But that's always easier said than done, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it is, especially if you're knee deep in projects yourself, you know, um, and, you know, you've been convinced or you've written a business case to develop a piece of software or functionality, for your organisation and it's a hard, you know exec buy-in because they're all excited because basically they read something in a Gartner report or a newspaper article that the world is moving this way and so we must have it too. And everyone gets caught up in that. And like you say, it's, it's easy for me to say stop the bus and take a wee, you know, sit down with a cup of tea and think about what you're doing rather than rushing headlong because your competitor might beat you to it.
0: Yeah. And I think that's always kind of an interesting look at it. And one thing I kind of wanted to ask you from a, a personal standpoint is the futurists and, and the people designing this and putting it out there, they're never wrong in, in this moment. So they can come today, here's this great product, it's going to f- change the future. They're not necessarily wrong, it could do. So it can be hard for anti-futurists to make their cases because you have no more evidence than the forecaster. So. Do you ever have an element of frustration where you want to get a certain point proven where you can see that this is not going to work but there's no way to back it up, really?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like being that scientist that, um, that says, oh, I found evidence of aliens and the, the thousand other scientists say, shut up, no, you haven't. And you put your your neck and reputation on the line by going against the grain. And it's not in an obstinate way. It is, Kind of how I feel a lot of the time, where there are predictions. Say, for example, augmented reality, and I think I'm pretty sure I read one by Peter Diamandis, basically saying, you know, it's going to be everywhere and it's going to improve life and it's going to be within healthcare and things. And I I felt like, you know, writing and saying, well, yeah, I've read all of these things before, but what futurists like Peter and uh, Ray Kurzweil and things, they get people whipped up in a frenzy. To the point where people don't actually understand the timeframes as well that these things can be delivered in, so they expect them in the next five years, and then of course the next five years contains vast amounts of disappointment because we're just nowhere near technologically to deliver that kind of functionality, and you know, and, and organisations aren't ready either. So, you know, there's a lack of qualification in terms of coming out with a, a forecast and then actually stamping. You know, some realism on it and saying, you look, guys, this is a great forecast, but it's not going to happen in the next year or five years. I'm talking 20 years. And even then, you know, a 20 year forecast is extremely hazy. Like I said, I think that kind of level of realism is lacking and it becomes frustrating for me because then I just sound like this really miserable dissenting voice and everyone's like really happy and excited. And it's like, oh, go away, go back in your corner, you miserable old man and it's like it's not like that at all
0: <laughs> just trying to help just trying to <laughs> yeah. push it forward a little bit. <laughs> no i think that's fair but whenever i see you making a point like follow you on linkedin and all of that kind of stuff it's always it always comes from a place of logic and common sense so i think as long as you stay on that path and you're not just old man yelling at cloud then, uh, then we'll be fine.
1: <laughs> I've yelled at a few clouds yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly uh, I think it's important to kind of direct the conversation towards obviously AI and ML as this has been a hot topic for the past couple of years and it's a topic that everyone loves to theorize on because there's a lot of theory behind it and whenever I end up doing these podcasts or I go to any of these talks it always comes down to ethical implications and what's the future of it so What's your views on the current approach to AI in the enterprise, and also how AI is being marketed to consumers?
1: You know, at at grassroots and fundamental level, I think it's really important to sort of remember that AI, at this point in time, is extremely immature, and it's just a bunch of algorithms. You know, I understand that the the term artificial intelligence is actually an umbrella for other disciplines like algorithms, Prescriptive analytics, machine learning, deep learning that kind of thing but unfortunately it's now been thrown around so as the main colloquialism and marketing term and it's kind of I don't know businesses are are, are leaping at it because they believe it's the key to their future and helping them you know not become the next links of London or you know House of Fraser kind of thing. To collapse under the weight of change. It's an immature landscape at the moment. Nobody's really doing anything that clever with machine learning and AI because it requires so much data and it requires data in a really clean format. If you go back to the old sort of GIGO, which is garbage in, garbage out, I mean, it's never been more relevant today than it has been because of what algorithms need to run. So if you feed algorithms really bad dirty data that's not been cleansed, that's not been deduped, that hasn't had some kind of you know ethical bias filter run over it, then you're really going to get very bad decision making coming out the other end, very bad recommendations. I mean you only have to look at how bad things are when you go to an Amazon website, you buy a mattress and then receive an email five days later recommending more mattresses to you this is supposed to be ai this is supposed to be you know intelligent algorithms making our shopping experiences better and it's like well if that's not a great example of amazon who is you know by far one of the biggest you know and most popular retailers in the world with stacks of money implementing an algorithm and you know artificial intelligence to help my shopping experience and suggest new things if that's an example of AI, then that gives you comfort that we're nowhere near artificial intelligence. Organizations need to understand what is the data that they have, how can they improve on that data, and then what are the internal capabilities in the organization as well? I mean, businesses seem to think that if I buy a piece of software, that's it, it it runs, and it'll make my business more effective and it's like no you need the right kind of resource capabilities to be able to wrangle the data so data scientists data analysts for example do you have anyone that you could actually train up to be data scientists uh, rather than go out to the marketplace and then you have to sit and think right well i have my resources i have all the data in the right place I have, you know, the basis of my algorithms and machine learning, I now have to train those algorithms, and that takes time as well. Um, Again, there's this perception that I flip the switch and instantly AI is going to be spitting out recommendations. No, you have to train these algorithms with the data sets that you have to basically generate those decisions or those recommendations over time. And it could take a good, you know, Year, two years before you've actually got an algorithm that you can trust to make these decisions. And again, this whole comes down to the hype in the marketing where, you know, if I go to a software provider, I just buy the package off the shelf or subscribe to the service and it's instantly going to work for me. It doesn't work like that. Well, that's kind of my views on the current approach, especially from a, a sort of corporate sense. From a consumer sense, you know, we've been living with algorithms for years. Like I said, Amazon, great example of, of, of an algorithm that uh, helps us making, you know, badly, I suppose, but make buying decisions by offering us other choices in relation to what we've purchased before. We use algorithms all the time. If you're using voice search, for example, in Siri or Google Assistant or Amazon Alexa, you know, there's algorithms running in the background that recognize our voice, The request, try to parse that request against what they can do in terms of learning how we want to interact with it. You know, that's how we as consumers are starting to interact with the world of AI.
0: I do definitely agree in the sense of there needs to be more responsibility in how this is marketed, because you're right, everyone's just being told this is what you need, but it's not necessarily what they can have and even when it comes down to to marketing people are starting to grab the word artificial intelligence and just apply it to things a good example oral b has a ai toothbrush
1: oh i know and for the life of me i don't
0: understand how that works it's that concern isn't it of of not letting this just be a marketing term that everyone just blankets and and picks out so i think that is something that needs to definitely be looked at And, and another point you made is obviously algorithms that's the most important part the data that you put in is the results you get out at the end of the day so having that explainable ai is key to understand how algorithms make these automated decisions but when it comes to this, a lot of examples I've seen, transparency seems to be more of a design choice. So should there be more transparency in the way
1: algorithms make decisions? Oh, absolutely. Without question. You know, I've seen examples and read about examples where not even the the, the people who who've design the algorithms or the scientists behind it actually understand how it reaches a decision and actually being able to, you know, it may not be completely a hundred percent proof that you'll be able to make you know the black box as transparent as possible. And this is kind of like a danger point or certainly a sort of set of red flags where you're trusting decision making, whether it's in a business context, whether it's a consumer context, even things like you know self-driving cars, for example, where you, you switch on the, the sort of the, you know, the automated cruise control side in a Tesla, it's made bad choices, you know, it's taken wrong turns, it's, um, you know, hit people, it's caused crashes, that kind of thing, and yet it, it's completely transparent in how it's made those decisions, you know, and there will be quirks in every system, in every algorithm, and I don't think you can catch them all, so I think we can certainly believe that we can make AI or, or advanced algorithms, machine learning as transparent as possible but i don't think we'll ever get to a point where we will completely understand how these decisions and choices and recommendations are made as the technology matures yeah
0: because it's difficult to obviously take the human bias out of the data that's being fed into it obviously maybe at some point it can be ml to ml and and just keep going that way but regardless there is going to be Some element of human bias, do you reckon that's something that we can obviously move away from in the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, people design algorithms and people are biased. So, you know, whether it's unconscious bias or very conscious bias, it's always going to slip in. I don't think you can ever remove it. And it would be interesting to see an algorithm that is completely devoid of bias and how it would respond and then how it would learn from real world input because again it's going to be trained on real sets of data and that data could be tainted with bias and at some point an algorithm could pick up on it and then suddenly become biased itself just through its own learnings you know how do you then dig back in and correct that or should you because then you're tinkering with things that you still don't understand so it's a weird snowball effect here and it has a lot of i guess subjective paths that could lead to disaster.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I spoke to you about this before we went on air, but there's, I've been doing some research lately on obviously military wanting to investigate into using AI for future wars and battles and just planning that. And I think that is a topic for another podcast maybe in the future because that is a very broad, <laughs> ethical <Yeah. laughs> discussion. But I think that's one of the main cruxes that I've been looking at is, is that kind of data bias snowball that could definitely build up. So it's, it's an interesting one. As we kind of wrap up here, because I've just noticed the time, I think it's important to kind of get your kind of final thoughts on when we're talking about all of this stuff today, is there anything that kind of keeps you up at night or or something that kind of plays on your brain and from a positive aspect, what are you looking forward to potentially seeing in the future?
1: I'm going to make you a futurist now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The robot apocalypse just doesn't keep me up at night. Let's put it that way. It's never going to happen. You know, we're not going to be overrun by terminators um, and things like that. The biggest thing for me that keeps you up at night, and it, it might be sound like a bit of a cliche, but I think climate change is the thing that is kind of niggling away at me right now. Again, we kind of sort of touched on this before the podcast in terms of what was going on with Extinction Rebellion down in London and how we actually get the message across in a way that is actually constructive rather than turning people off the subject. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there just in terms of the movement from fossil fuels to green energy, for example. I saw a, a post on LinkedIn, which kind of irked me a bit because it was comparing the US green economy to fossil fuels directly. And I had to counter, and again, it's, it's, it's back down to this whole sort of miserable man yelling at cloud or is it a pointed discussion. The green economy is made up of you know several different factors and renewable energy is one. And you cannot compare the impact of a green economy just purely on fossil fuels versus renewable energy. So, you know, I had to sort of come in and basically poo-poo the entire article. And I think that's the kind of misinformation that kind of keeps me up at night and annoys me because climate change is happening. It's not going to stop. It's not going to be about carbon credits or plastic straws or anything else like that. We seem to be distracted by a lot of small things. And it's geared towards inaction, again, really impactful or misdirection in terms of avoiding taking real impactful action to lessen the impact of climate change. But we're not going to stop it. I think that train left the station long ago. So that's probably one of the things that sort of keeps me up at night. On a positive note, and I guess going back to the AI discussion that we had, I gave a TED talk a couple of years back, and I do see once this field matures, that AI and, you know, robotics and things like that will actually take a lot of the mundane jobs that humans really should be doing. We seem to be clinging on to them for some reason, but frankly, we shouldn't. And I see humanity in general returning to a bit of a renaissance period where we become more practical with our skill set, less reliant on coding and developing but more in learning about you know the ologies if you want to put you know for want of a better term the sociology and psychology and physiology and, and more sort of practical pastimes as well things that will impact society you know at a fundamental level and not just building the next LinkedIn or Facebook kind of app so I think if we can get to that point with AI I think it would be a, a great place for humanity to be in, and that's kind of like a one of the sort of positive outlooks that I want to see coming from AI. If I was going to make some kind of futurist prediction, you know, I would love to see something yeah. happening in the next fifty years that actually puts humanity on a better footing in itself than where we are now.
0: Excellent, perfectly said. And I think uh, maybe I've got a future as a futurist. <laughs>
1: <Maybe switch> gears. <laughs> I'll consult the cards. <laughs> exactly. For you, it's
0: been an absolute pleasure speaking to speak with you today. If anyone wants to kind of continue the conversation, or have you got any talks coming up? Where's the best place to kind of reach you?
1: I'm usually lurking on Twitter and LinkedIn mostly. That's where I'm most active. Uh, I have a couple of talks coming up. I've got one in. Uh, november in scotland i've got another one actually in, in glasgow next week talking around um, deep fakes in the legal profession and i've got some booked for next year that are coming up as well so kicking around the world giving talks
0: lovely i find you somewhere sounds perfect you. again thank you so much for this chat i've really enjoyed it pleasure thank you And thank you to everyone who took the time to listen today. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. Be sure to visit em360tech.com for more podcasts like that. We'll be back next week with another episode in our Ask the Expert series. But until then, we hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the EM360 Podcast. For more great content, head on over to em360tech.com.
1: Bonjour, c'est Marine de l'équipe ACAST. Vous écoutez des podcasts Voilà pourquoi je voudrais vous recommander l'empreinte. Un podcast business passionnant du studio Bababam. La révolution du sens a commencé et on s'interroge chaque jour sur l'impact de nos habitudes de consommation. Il nous faut désormais de l'authenticité, du sens et de l'engagement. Mais les marques que j'achète, où en sont-elles Quelles actions mènent-elles au quotidien Et que font-elles en termes de RSE J'ai lancé avec Bababam le podcast L'Empreinte. On s'intéresse à cette révolution du sens et de l'impact. Pour répondre à toutes ces questions, j'interroge chaque semaine un chef d'entreprise, dirigeant ou start Ensemble, nous revenons sur leur parcours et ils partagent leur vision de ce que doit être une marque, ses valeurs, ses engagements et surtout son empreinte. C'est mon coup de cœur du moment. Et pour le partager, rendez-vous sur l'application Acast ou bien là où vous écoutez vos podcasts préférés.